I'm a dog person. Anybody else out there a dog person? I know we have some cat people in the house. When I was growing up, my sister begged for a cat. We always had dogs growing up. My sister begged for a cat. My dad always told us that he was allergic and that we couldn't have a cat in the house. Um, my cousins would have litters of cats because, you know, that's what happens. They multiply. And my sister would pet the kittens, and she would always beg, oh, Daddy, please, can we get a cat? And he would say, no, I'm allergic. You know my parents have had cats for the last 10 years? Like, totally strange. Like, they've completely had cats. Uh, I never have, still. Just didn't grow up with them. Don't necessarily know how to care for them. Don't quite understand the fact that they're super independent and don't really need you anyway. And I've just always been a dog person. Susan and I, year one of marriage, we got a puppy. And we've literally not, been, not missed many moments in the past 20 without having a dog. This is our current dog, Sunny. Sunny the Golden Doodle. She's just 65 pounds of love. I'm just, in, oh, I can't, you're going to have to take the picture down or I won't be able to focus because I'm just going to stare at her. Love that dog. My daughter, the oldest, we used to put them in a brownie troop where they would sell Girl Scout cookies and do the whole nine yards. And one of the activities that they did one time was to go to a local animal shelter. And so we're at the local animal shelter and we start to miss my oldest, Lee Kate. She's rising eighth grader now. She's like five years old. We start to miss her and we realize that she's over at a cage of cats. You know, she's, she has also begged for not only dogs and cats, but every other myriad of animal that you can possibly imagine in our life, and yet we've only ever given her the dog. We do have two bunnies right now, but I don't claim them. So she's at this cage of cats, and she's literally sitting over there saying, I hope you're still here when I get big, because I'm going to come back and get you. Like, she's so excited about having these cats. She tells my wife in the car one day, she's like, Mom, why don't we have cats? And Susan really is allergic and has, like, all sorts of pet out. Anyway, so she, um, she tells her, well, you know, Mommy's allergic, and your dad and I don't really know how to take care of cats, so we have a dog. And Lily Kate says, well, you're not going to want to come to my house when I get big. And Susan says, well, why? And she says, because I'm going to have tons of them, like tons of them. She's like six years old and she's self-prescribing. She's going to be a cat lady. I'm so excited. You know, it is kind of an age old debate, like dog people, cat people. Now you will find the occasional person who likes both, but most of the time you're a dog person or a cat person. And there can be a big argument on either side as to why you are the way that you are and, and what the best choice for family pet is. There's a book. It's called Dog and Cat Theology. And what you didn't know about dogs and cats and your preference of pets is that you can learn a lot about God based on the study of these animals. You see, one of these animals says, you pet me and you love me, you feed me, you house me, you take care of me, you must be God. And the other one of those pets says, you pet me, you love me, you feed me, you house me, you take care of me, I must be God. <laughs> and you kind of know which is which. The dog says, you are everything to me and I will worship you with everything that I have. And the cat says, I am everything to you, bow down before me. And what we don't realize is that it's not just those kinds of preferences that grow up with our pets, it's also those kinds of people and even believers the ones who know that the entire universe revolves around a living, holy Father God and that the blessings he bestows on us are nothing that we ever deserve. And in response to that, we're going to worship him and worship him alone. And the ones who somehow believe that because God provides blessings, because God takes care of us, because he 
loves us, then we must be pretty special. (laughs) There's a, a prayer, the prayer that says, bless me, multiply me, enlarge my territory, keep me from all harm, and don't expect any effort out of me along the way. God, just pour out your riches. That's a cat prayer. And there's a prayer that says, oh, take me, use me, spend me, help me to obey you with everything that I have, and I will sacrifice it all on the line for you. There's the dog prayer today. And regardless of what your preference is for a pet, I hope you have a pretty clear preference as a person of who you want to be in response to God. First Peter 3, 15, that Tiffany read a moment ago, says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And that, that word revere, in some of your Bible translations, it's going to say acknowledge. In some of your Bible translations, it's going to say sanctify. And it's the Greek word hagiadzos. And what it really means is to set apart as holy. In your hearts, in your life, in everything that there is to know about you, revere God as the center of your universe. Not you, him and him alone. And then it says always be prepared because we're revering Christ as Lord. Always be prepared. That word is ready. That word is from an old, old, old Greek noun, which basically means fitness. Oh, we don't want to talk about fitness today, Nick. You know we had carbs for breakfast. It's about physical fitness and spiritual readiness to be able to give an answer for the faith that we have in Jesus. Why is this so important? Because people who have no faith in God have a lot of questions. Why is it so important? Because people who have a little, Matthew chapter 17, mustard seed faith in God, they too have a lot of questions. Why does this matter? Because people who have great faith in God, we still have a lot of questions. And so in our hearts, revering Christ as Lord, we should be prepared no matter what. The Bible also says in uh, 2 Timothy, in and out of season, everything that we do to make sure that we're ready to give an answer for the hope and the faith that we have in Jesus. Do you ever feel unprepared to do that? Y'all, I do. I don't always feel ready. I don't always feel ready to give an answer to everybody that asks me for the hope that I have in Jesus. But I can also say that I'm not always revering Christ as Lord. Sometimes I'm putting myself in the cat box to say, look at me, bless me, resource me, fill me. Protect me. Keep me. Instead of use me, prepare me, spend me, give me, and everything that I am in order to worship you and you alone. What's your custom when it comes to communicating truth and providing answers? We talked about that with the life of Paul because he had practice and he had a pattern and a plan to enter into the synagogue. And this chapter of Acts chapter 17, as we finish up this series, Life on Purpose, today is no different. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, or you can turn to the verses on the screen or pull them up on your app. Acts chapter 17, starting with verse 1, it says this, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Well, we got a Bible book by that name where there was a Jewish synagogue. We've seen the places where there was no Jewish synagogue because there wasn't 10 Jewish men in order to form a synagogue, but now we're back to another place where there was a Jewish synagogue, and it was his customary pattern that whenever there was a Jewish synagogue, he would go there first. Paul and his companions passed through these places. They came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue, and as was his custom, his pattern, his plan, his usual, he came into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, that's three weeks of time, he reasoned, that's the Greek word dialect, 
dialogai, and it's where we get the word dialogue. He had a conversation. He went back and forth. He talked with these guys. He reasoned with these guys from the scriptures. And what were their scriptures had been at this time? Are they, are they chowing down on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? No, they're just now in the book of Acts. They're chowing down on the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament law, the books of the canon, like the, the, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, all of those history books, all of those prophets, all of those poetic words about what God was going to do and when he was going to do it. He reasoned with them through the Old Testament scriptures, explaining and proving. Sounds like he was prepared to give an answer for the hope that he had. That the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. If you're a person who's holding a physical Bible in front of you and you like to underline parts of your Bible and come back to later, underline that phrase, rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. He's the one. And I'm going to go through Old Testament scriptures and prove to you and explain to you how I know for sure that he is the one. And it says in verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. What if people in your life, what if quite a few Jews and quite a few prominent Greeks and quite a few women in your life are, are just a couple of answers away from expressing faith in Jesus? Are you prepared to revere Christ as Lord in your heart and to give them an answer for the hope that you have in him. What's your custom when it comes to communicating the truth? The passage continues because while some of the Jews were persuaded and some of the God-fearing Greeks were persuaded and quite a few prominent women were persuaded, it says in verse 5, other Jews were jealous so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world. <laughs> That's an exaggeration at this point, right? All over the world, these troublemakers have caused trouble. All over the world, they have now come here. Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. And as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, guess what? There was another Jewish synagogue, and they went there. You know, I think one of the reasons why we're not prepared, one of the reasons why we're less apt, one of the reasons why we're not excited about giving an answer for the hope that we have in Jesus is because we know that we will face opposition. It's in your notes this morning if you're following along with the app. I'm sorry we can't give you paper all the time, but you can write it down or you can follow along. It's going to be on a note on the screen. If the fear of coming under fire or that it might backfire causes you to lose fire, well... We need to go back to 1 Peter 3.15 and revere Christ as Lord. Latch on to our dog theology and say it doesn't matter. We're going to do whatever it takes. We're going to serve our master. If the fear of coming under fire or the thought that somehow it might backfire causes you to lose fire, well, something's wrong. But that's okay. It doesn't have to be. We can fix it. We need to revere Christ as Lord in our hearts 
and prepare ourselves to give an answer for the hope that we have in Jesus. And there's a spectrum in this, and a lot of Christians use that as an opportunity to say, well, I'm not going to lose fire. I'm just going to rain fire down on top of somebody. Now listen, our passion for Jesus does not give us permission to start fires. And you know the believers that are out there starting fires all over the place. That's not winning anybody to Jesus. In fact, what did these guys do? They kicked the dust off their feet like Jesus had instructed the disciples to do when they went out into the cities healing people in his name. They kissed the, kicked the dust off their feet, left Thessalonica when the trouble got to and they went to another town and continued doing the same exact thing. If the fear of coming under fire causes you to lose fire, if the fear that it might backfire causes you to lose fire, don't stick around and start fires. Just go to the next place where you can fan a fire into flame and tell somebody else about the passionate hope that you have in Jesus. Choosing safety doesn't signal fear. It might just be wisdom. We kind of know that in our world today. And so in 1 Peter, it says in verse 15, that as we are prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have in Jesus, we are to do this with gentleness and respect. With gentleness and respect. Not beating somebody down with the fiery word of the Lord but offering them hope and peace and love. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 says that we are to speak the truth in love. It's a continuum of giving answers, truth, gentleness and respect, love, and it's a balance between the two. John Stott says that too much truth without enough love is way too hard. But too much love without enough truth is way too soft. We need to Goldilocks this thing out and find just the right bed in the middle. Too much truth without enough love. Too hard. Too much love without enough truth. Too soft. So Paul proclaimed the truth. He preached the truth. He gave answers for the truth. And out of gentleness and respect, when people weren't ready to hear that all truth, he stepped out of there and went into a new place. And you can find that he went to Berea. We're actually going to skip that whole story in Scripture today, the Bereans, and come back to it at the end. And we want to dive into when he lands in Athens. You can skip down to verse 16, and it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. What distresses you? What stresses you out? Quick, let me pull up your Facebook feed. I'll find out real fast. You can tell a lot about a person. You can tell a lot about what's most important to a person by the things that they're devoted to, by the things that they're a fan of, by the things that they talk about, but, but also the things that they're stressed out about. You can tell a lot about a person, about what's important to them by their distress, what matters to them. Out of this whole book of thousands and thousands of pages and thousands and thousands of words, I have one passage of Scripture that stresses me out more than any other passage of Scripture. You see, God had done this miraculous work in the life of Moses. He had rescued his people. He had brought them to a promised land. Moses died. He couldn't go in and led them through Joshua to take those cities and to fulfill the promise that God had gave his people. And then the whole book of Joshua comes, and they're in the land, and it's awesome. And then you get to the book of Judges. Just one book later, in chapter 2, it says that Joshua and all of those other ancestors died. All of those other leaders died. And in Judges 2.10, it says this, After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. 
Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. It causes me stress. It causes me to lose sleep, not in an unfaithful, fearful way, but it causes me a sense of urgency in the life of the church because let's just be honest, this generation, the people that are sitting in this room, I've got the gray hairs to prove it. Some of y'all do too. Like this generation, we're going to pass away and we're going to go to our ancestors and we're going to meet holy Jesus Christ as Lord. And we're not just going to reveal him in our hearts anymore. We're going to reveal him with our whole beings and it's going to be a state of unbridled ecstasy when we see him and when we are fully known by him and when we get to fully picture the perfect heavenly place that he created for us. But when we do that, we're going to leave a generation after us. And what we hope that the generation who comes after us is not like the generation that was in Judges chapter 2 who doesn't know the Lord or what he did for us. Like it's up to us to pass that faith. From Deuteronomy on, it was tasked to not just parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, but to the whole community of faith to leave that legacy of faith for another generation. And if you want to know what stresses me out as a pastor, but not just a pastor, as a parent, you want to know what stresses me out. It's the idea that we may leave a generation behind us who does not know the Lord of us. So in verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day, those who happened to be there. As was his custom, as was his pattern, went to the place where, where in love he could communicate truth. It says in verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? They just didn't get it. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods, ones that they didn't know. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. These are people that were just uninformed. They didn't know the news about Jesus and the resurrection. You already underlined that he rose from the dead. Now you're going to underline the resurrection. He's talking about something that they didn't know about. And so then they they took him, verse 19, and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Like, they're going to sit and talk about the law and talk about what it means and talk about philosophy. It's like the steps of the courthouse leading in where bills are passed and laws are made and big debates are had. He went to the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Parentheses, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. It was social media. This was like Twitter in the first century. What are the latest ideas? What are the newest pieces of something that we can get excited about and we can repost and we can get interested in? Like they're just talking about new ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see in every way that you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant. Don't take that as a, as a put down. It's just like you're just uninformed. You're just ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. This whole idea of idolatry, it wasn't new in Athens. It wasn't new in the book of Acts. It had been going on since the beginning of time. That's why it was such an issue for the people in the Old Testament and the Baals that the Israelites began to worship when they didn't know the things that God had done for them. This idea of idolatry was not new in Athens, and it is not new now. They did it in Judges. They did it in Acts. They do it today. What are your known gods? 
What are the things that you just self-admittedly struggle with? Uh, struggle that you put in the place of Jesus. Struggle that you put in the top shelf in your life. Struggle that you give the most attention to. There are some things that we just know about ourselves. Like, I know that this is a stronghold in my life. I know that this is an idol in my life. I know that this is an issue in my life. I need accountability. I need support. I need prayer. I need truth. I need to distance myself. I know that there are certain idols in my life that I continue to walk way too closely in hand with. But there's some unknown ones, too. I need somebody to point them out. I need somebody to bring them to light. I need somebody to reveal that truth in love to me so that I can recognize the fact that this is an idol for me and step away from it and put Jesus back in the center of my universe where he needs to be, where I can revere Christ as Lord, where I can dog the mess theology out of this and say, he's the center of everything and I'm just lucky to be his. What are your known gods? How about your unknown ones? What Paul's doing for these people is what we have to do for ourselves and for the generations that come after us because it's always so much less about what people do. Paul looked around and he saw idols to everything. Got a God here, God here, God here, God there, God everywhere, God, God, oh my God. Like these people had tons of gods. And he looked around. It's, it's not about what they were doing. It was always more about their worldview. Not what they did, but what they believed. A worldview defined as a collection of attitudes and values and stories and expectations about the world around us. It informs our every thought and our every action. And for most of us, that worldview was formed by the time we were 10 years old. I spent the first part of my ministry career in student ministry, grabbing 6th through 12th graders and taking them on a journey of faith. And those kids were 12 all the way up to 18-year-olds before we shipped them off to college or the real world around them. And what I realized in those first few years of doing student ministry is that everything I did was on the defense. I was trying to break down all the wrong parts of a worldview that had already been developed. And out of that moment in student ministry, God called me to the other team where I could play offense for a little bit and build it up kindergarten through the fifth grade. I served as the children's pastor at Rolling Hills. And to me, it was just the difference between defense and offense. I wasn't helping kids unpack all the wrong parts of a worldview that was already developed. I was helping parents come alongside their kids and instill the parts of a worldview that we hoped would develop in its place. I know for a lot of us, that worldview has changed and shifted so much through the years and through the generations. I know for a lot of us, it's been a constant unpacking and unpacking and recycling and throwing out all the bad parts that you don't need of a worldview that was pushed on you and impressed on you so that you could replace it with thoughts of Jesus to revere Christ as Lord of your life. It's always less about what we do, although that matters. It's what we believe that really counts. So, Paul says to them, starting in, in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. He's unpacking their worldview. They had lots of gods, living in all kinds of temples built by human hands, and he's saying the one God who made the whole world and everything in it, he does not live in a temple that's made by your hands. He's unpacking their worldview. 
He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and their boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him. His whole purpose is that we would know him. And perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. You know what my kids say when I get home from work? They look at the dog and they say, Sonny, your master is home. No. They say, Sonny, daddy's home. Go get daddy. And then she finds me and tackles me and licks me and gets so excited to see me because she wants nothing more than a moment with me. And in a moment when Jesus was asked by his disciples, hey, how should we pray? How should we approach this Old Testament God that we've known about our whole lives? How should we approach this covenant God that we've known about our whole lives? He said, you can call him Father. Hey, sonny, daddy is home. We are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, gold or silver or stone, those carved images that they had all over the city, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. We're his offspring. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't know this before, but, but now you get to know him. He's he's shaping their worldview. Ultimately, your worldview will determine what you do and the manner in which you do it. It will ultimately determine everything about you. Paul said in the past, God just overlooked such ignorance. Don't think ignorance as stupidity. Think ignorance as just people that are uninformed. In Acts chapter 14, verse 16, he looked at the people of Lystra and Derby. He said, hey guys, in the past, he let nations go their own way. So he's saying the same thing to the Athenians at this point. Hey guys, in the past, God overlooked this kind of ignorance. He overlooked this kind of mystery of information where you guys weren't blessed with the stories about God from the Old Testament. You guys weren't blessed with Jesus coming into your people and your day and your generation to die on the cross and save us from our sins and come back to life. Like You weren't blessed with that knowledge, but now the mystery that Scripture talks about all over the place is now being revealed to you so that you don't have to live under ignorance anymore. We're not going in, to inform you of what the truth actually is. In a loving way, we're going to tell you about Jesus. So what do you do? He commends all people to repent, for he set a day when he's going to judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed, and he has given proof to this to everyone by what? Look at verse 30 and 31. By raising him from the dead. You know, this is the truth and love that people really need to know about. Jesus Christ is alive. We get real hung up on the crucifixion, and we ought to get hung up on the crucifixion because, boy, we needed the crucifixion. But Jesus didn't just die to save me from my sins. We, we talk about that. It's like, oh, kids, why did Jesus die on the cross to save me from my sins? We ought to fix that. Why did Jesus die on the cross and come back to life to save me from my sins? We can't forget the resurrection is part of the story. It's what separates us from the worldview of the rest of the world. Everything that we know and believe and understand hinges on the resurrection, and too often our 
talks about the cross and the crucifixion leave the resurrection out or as an afterthought. We need to talk about how Jesus is alive. Scripture teaches that. Mark chapter 16, he looked at all the people. This is the Mark's version of the Great Commission. Go out into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation so that they can know. So that they can know and so that they can understand back to the Bereans. You know, we skipped them. We went straight from Thessalonica to Athens. It says in verse 11, you know, he went to the Bereans. He found the synagogue. He went and he obviously reasoned with them. He dialogued with them about their faith. And this is what the Bereans did. It says, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. What scriptures were they examining? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? The story of Acts chapter 9, Peter and Cornelius in Acts chapter No. They were going back to the Old Testament. They were going back to all those stories. They were going back to all those prophecies. They were going back to all those songs. They were going back to all those historical moments when God provided for and cared for and nurtured their people and from those scriptures are able to reasonably prove that this Jesus who Paul is talking about is that Messiah that they were waiting for. 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul giving us the summary of what he says the gospel is. And he says, and I'm just going to read these words for you. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of most importance. This is it, that Christ died for our sins According to the scriptures, those Old Testament words, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Don't leave the resurrection out. What? According to the scriptures. And it, he goes on in Matthew, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, to say these words. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, forget about the fact that he died. If he was not raised from the dead, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Our worldview doesn't just hinge on a Christ that would die in our place. Our worldview better hinge on Christ that came back to life so that he could call us to his place. Everything hinges on the resurrection. I read an article in the Gospel Coalition that says this. Here's the other side of this coin. If Jesus did rise from the dead, just if, if Jesus rose from the dead, then every human being is confronted with a demand, a demand to believe what he said, to acknowledge him as king, and to submit to him as Savior and Lord. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Sanctify, set him apart as holy. Make him your absolute main thing. Put him in the center of your universe because he's already in the center of his. 15 plus years of middle school, high school ministry in the local church. That followed five years of middle school, high school ministry in North Carolina Baptist churches, um, at least one denomination. And I saw a lot of parents raising cats. Don't be mad at me if you love cats. I'm just following an illustration here. Somebody's already Facebook messaging me and saying, Nick, how could you pick on cats so much? A lot of parents are raising cats. You are so special. 
You are the most important thing in the world to me. I could not live my life without you, so I'm going to actually orient all of our life around you. Everything about you is going to dictate our schedule. Everything about you is going to dictate our patterns. Everything about you is going to change the shape of our family and our destiny because you are the most important thing in the world to me. And we wonder why every single incoming freshman class that we get at the major universities in the world is more stuck on themselves than the one before. Because they're the center of the known universe. They always have been. And one hour of Bible study a week saying that God is the center of the universe was not going to unpack the other six days of the week where moms and dads are looking at their children and saying, nothing matters as much as you. We're raising cats. Kids who look back, herding cats, that's hard, right? Kids who look back at us and say, wow, you feed me, you clothe me, you love me. You buy me everything that I've ever asked for or wanted. I pick the restaurants. I pick the vacations. All the choices that you make, all the money that you spend, all of the ideas that you have center around me. I must be God. And we could be inadvertently putting an altar to an unknown God of our children on a pedestal in our home, raising a generation who doesn't know that the pedestal that they sit on really belongs to God, really belongs to Jesus. Reggie Joyner is one of my heroes, and he says, what I give to my children or what I do for my children is not as important as what I leave in them. Inheritance is what you leave to your kids. Some of them are going to get one and some of them aren't. Let's just be honest. Inheritance is what you leave to your kids. Legacy is what you leave in your kids. And make no mistake, if we don't leave in our kids, Acts chapter 17, verse 11, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what was Paul said was true. I wonder if I can substitute Berean Jews with Allen kids. Now the Allen kids were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received this message with eagerness. And every day they examined the scriptures to see if what mom and dad said was true. Are the Kanzunza kids of more noble character than those in Thessalonica? Are the Owen kids more noble than those in Thessalonica? I know Nora Gibbs is. You look up eagerness in scripture, it's, it's Nora Gibbs. And so what we want is that eagerness to cause her to through careful examination of the scriptures, revere Christ as Lord and prepare her when we're all gone, because we will be gone, to give an answer for the hope that she has and to be able to look at the world around her and say, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. The reason everything hinges on the resurrection 
is that Jesus did not come back to life so that you and I could be the center of life. In our hearts, we're supposed to revere Christ as Lord. And when we do, everyone around us will know that we do not consider ourselves more important and that we don't even consider you as more important than him. Revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared. Go out into the synagogue. Go out into the streets. Go on your social media and be prepared always to give an answer for the hope that you have in Jesus because he's the center of it all. And instead of raising a generation of people who can only rightfully assume by our own actions that they are the most important people on the planet, let's show them that Jesus was the most important person who ever lived and also lives again. We want that to be our legacy. So the Judges 2.10 won't exist again. Because we want that next generation to know all about God and what he did for us through Jesus. And then we want them to revere him as Lord and to always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that they have in Jesus because they know that it's all about him. God, we thank you for this great day. We thank you for this opportunity to be in this place and to worship freely and exclusively. And God, it's our sincerest hope is that we would be a people who fully recognize and abandon the known gods in our lives and also fully admit and understand the unknown gods that are in our lives and that we would live everything about our lives pointing to you and only you. Father, I pray for the parents and grandparents in this room because it's hard. And we want to spend everything, give everything, do everything that we can to make life great for our kids. Oh, God, remind us that instead of that, we need to spend everything, do everything, believe everything to make you great in front of our kids. That's the legacy we want to leave. And those of us out in this room who are not parents yet or who will not be parents ever, we are not off the hook because this community of faith needs every single one of us pouring into the next generation so that when we're all gathered, we leave behind a legacy that knows, 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 and lives, 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 reverence, acknowledgement, sanctification of Jesus Christ alone as Lord. We want the generation that comes after us, God, to be better than us at knowing you and claiming you and following you with everything that we have. God, you love us, so you are God. And we want to make that truth known. It's in your holy and precious perfect name that we pray today. Amen.